So for some, being married is quite hard, I've heard. Um, a lot of people talk about, before we were married, they would talk to my wife and I about that first year of marriage. And they get like this crazy look in their eyes, like it was like a tour of duty or something. Like just saying it, like they get a shiver down their spine. And, um, you know, they get that desperate look in your eyes like, it's going to be horrible. I hope you survive. And so people would say this stuff to us, and then we got married, and we were just terrified. Like, what's going to happen? And, and we, after, you know, our first year of marriage, we are like, what are people talking about? So for us, um, marriage was very easy. Our first year of marriage, everyone else, we've heard all these war stories. And for us, it was like Disney World. It was like totally magical. Every night ended with fireworks. <laughs> So, so I have this ridiculously easy marriage at the front end, and that, we found very quickly, became a serious disadvantage when I tried to start a singles ministry in Dallas. So, like, I go to the singles ministry, and, and I've got this great marriage, and I come, and I meet these 20-somethings who come to me like, no one has ever experienced the level of suffering I've had. Do you know how hard it is to be single? Like, you know, using words like unthinkable and inhumane and unlivable. And I would try to assure them, I'd be like, it's going to be okay. Singleness is not a disease. (laughs) Like, it doesn't mean you're incomplete or broken. It doesn't. Jesus was single. Jesus was single. He knows exactly what you're going through. He lived it. And by the way, I'm pretty sure he was like nailed to a cross and forsaken by his father. So I think he knows at least a little bit what your suffering's like. Just saying. And so I'd have that conversation over and over again. But you know what the response was every time? Whatever. Whatever. Because at the end of the night, you're going to go home to your perfect wife. And I'm going to go home to Netflix and my cat. (laughs) And I would always be like, you are right. My life is good. She's pretty perfect. And I hate cats. (laughs) Because for some, for some some reason that was never helpful, but for some, marriage is very hard, and for some it's quite easy. For some, singleness is very hard, and for others it's quite easy. So I want to start out by saying, I will not apologize for my good marriage. (laughs) But I do want to recognize the very real pain of loneliness and unfulfilled desires. I've known men and women who beg God for a spouse for years and sometimes he gives a spouse and sometimes he says to them my grace is sufficient for you and that is a hard hard pill to swallow so if you're here today I want to acknowledge that I cannot fix this for you in a single sermon in any more than I can fix a marriage in a single sermon but here's what we can do and I'm using the plural here we as a church here's what we can do we can affirm singleness We can treat it as a sacred calling just as marriage is a sacred calling. We can encourage you in your calling. We can become a community where singles are included and supported. And for those singles who feel called to marriage, we can help you find a Jesus-loving hottie. We can do that. So, 
Today, we are going to look at the topic, seven questions to ask before getting married. Seven questions to ask before getting married. And let me just be blunt. Singles, I'm talking to you. I am. But I want you to know, married people, please, please don't tune, tune me out here. Um, I want you to listen carefully to how the Apostle Paul affirms and supports singleness. So in an era where singleness is often viewed with suspicion or treated like some communicable disease, the Apostle Paul is going to speak truth that we need to embrace and live out as a community. Good? All right, so our text for today is 1 Corinthians. We're going to start where we ended last week. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7. And, and let me remind you of where we're at. The church of Corinth, the Apostle Paul is now addressing specific questions that they wrote to him in a letter. And he's going to pull out these questions and they have this comment like, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He's like, um, let's qualify that. In marriage, that's actually not good. So you could, might recall that there were some women who considered themselves spiritual. So in order to be spiritual, they decided to give up sex permanently, even if they were married. And then there's some men who can't take a sexless, sexless marriage, so they start visiting prostitutes. And at this point, in the church at Corinth, marriage is a mess. The whole thing is a mess. And so we, we come to this question in the text. Wouldn't it be better if we were just all single? Like, wouldn't it just be better if, if we were all single? That's the question. The Apostle Paul, at the end of the last passage, says this. I wish that all of you were as I am. There'd be so much less drama if you're just celibate and happy. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another that. So this is a hinge verse. Technically, he's still talking to married people, but he uses this to swing in, just talking to singleness here. And he's going to give us this, drop this like critical fact that we need to know before all of the rest of the discussion here. And it's this. Celibacy, that is indefinitely going without sexual intimacy in a way that's pleasing to God. Celibacy is a gift from God. It's a gift. So two implications this. One, he points out here, not everybody's got this gift. And number two, it is from God. That means it's good. So whatever he said in the past few weeks about sex, um, showing the, reflecting the image of God, that in sex, we, it points us to Jesus, it points us to spiritual realities. I, I'm not going to take any of that away. All of that is true. But I want you to, to not miss the bigger point. Sex is not ultimate. Jesus is. God is. Sex is great because it points us to Jesus. Jesus says explicitly, there will be no marriage in heaven, which strongly suggests there will be no sex. So I want you, I want you to think about this. This is not because sex is bad or dirty or sinful, but sex is going to be replaced by something even greater that Jesus is greater than sex. That's the big point. So some people, when they choose a life of celibacy, to live a life of celibacy, is to declare before the entire world, Jesus is greater than sex. Like, I might have to go my whole life and never know sex. Never know the joy of, of, of marriage or children or grandchildren or any of that. I might be alone my whole life, but I'm going to declare by faith that no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for Jesus 
will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present age and in the age to come. What God's going to do in my life, it's worth it. It's greater. It's ultimately greater. I'm going to give up short-term joy for long-term joy. That's what celibacy is. So the first question we have to ask when we come from this text, when we come to marriage, if you're single, should I get married? The first question we have to ask is this. Do I have the gift of celibacy? Which begs the question, how do I know if I have the gift? So, verse 8. Now, I say to the unmarried and the widows, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. The word unmarried there, just a little footnote there, is almost certainly referring to widowers. Um, in Koine Greek, which this was written in, there is a word technically in Greek, widower, but it never occurs in all of Koine Greek. So unmarried, he's almost certainly referring to those widowers and widows here. And, and there's, when he says there, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do, scholars actually think, for lots of reasons, which I'm not going to go into and are not that important, um, actually think that the Apostle Paul was a widower. Huh? Interesting. Ever heard that? So they think that he was. So he's saying, it's really good if you stay single as I do. Like I've been there, done that, singleness works for me. But then he goes on to say, verse 9, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. It technically says, it just stops with burn. They should marry for it is better to marry than to burn. And there is a possible reading that he could mean burn in hell. (laughs) But we, we're pretty sure it means this. Yeah. Which brings me to cornflakes. Did you know that in 1906, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg invented cornflakes while working as a superintendent of an insane asylum? Did you know this? Do you know why he created them? And I quote, To curb young men of their masturbatory desires. Which suggests, if cornflakes do not work, you, friend, do not have the gift, you should try marriage. (laughs) If cornflakes work for you in that way, then you've got the gift. That's it. That's the measure. (laughs) But if you eat cornflakes all day and you still burn with passion, you, my friend, probably do not have the gift. If you cannot control yourself, technically, all seriousness, if you cannot control your sexual desires in a way that is healthy and godly, you probably do not have the gift. So singles, let's, let's unpack this for a minute because this is, if you cannot control yourselves, this is a big deal here. This is going to come to the big topic of our age, porn. Now, you'll know I mentioned the Greek and stuff there to say that porn has been around in some form or another for thousands of years. But here's the difference. Here's the difference. In the last 20 years, technology has done something. We are in a technological revolution that has caused a sexual revolution in our lives. Porn is now so available and so accessible at such a young age and in such vast quantities that it is a million times worse than anyone could have imagined prior to the Internet. Men, um, I've already addressed you multiple times on this. In fact, I yelled at you. Um, and, and, and there's good reason for it. If you don't fight for your life in this day and age, you will become a sex addict and a porn addict. You will. If you don't protect yourself, you're headed that way. If, if you're just the normal man and you just, just go with the flow, that's where you're headed. 
Um, I, I, just to remind you, on our resource page, we have all kinds of resources for web filters, books, um, and things like, like that. We are starting the 31 Days of Purity email that's going to go out starting tomorrow. You can sign up on our resource page, on our Facebook page. So I, I don't want to skip over that because that's a massive issue for men. But you know what's happened? Every single week after I've preached in this series, you know what's happened? At least one woman has come up to me and says, you know, porn's a problem for women too. The fastest growing demographic of porn users in the United States is, and I quote, women between the ages of 18 and 24. According to the Journal of Adolescence, uh, Adolescent Research, a study came out that says, peer-reviewed article, one out of every three women, one out of every three between the ages of 18 and 26 is currently using porn. One out of every five would describe their behavior as habitual and or addictive. Porn is not just every man's struggle, it's every man and woman's struggle. So uh, specifically, just want to address this. We have a few resources. This is out of my comfort zone for, for speaking into, right? I, I understand a man's brain and I understand how to yell at them. Um, but you need a woman probably to guide you through this discussion. We have a couple resources. Dana Gresh's book out there, What Are You Waiting For?, speaks to this directly. Um, in a gender-appropriate, helpful fashion. There's also, don't laugh, it's a real deal. There's a site by Crystal Renaud called Dirty Girls Ministry. You won't forget that soon. Um, If you struggle, I just want to encourage you. You're not alone. Find help. Get accountability. So, that having been said, let's get back to the subject at hand here. When considering uh, marriage, the first question we need to ask is this. Do I have the gift of celibacy? And the fact of the matter is, if you struggle with all this, if you can't keep your sexual health in line, if you can't, if you can't control it, then the answer is probably no. Probably no. And then in the text after this verse, after um, verse 9, verses 10 through 24 here, the Apostle Paul is going to d- address singleness. Get this. Through divorce, singleness through divorce. I'm completely skipping this section, not because it's unimportant, but because we're going to talk about that next week. But for today's purposes, I do want you to see this. When we talk about divorce in this section, it's not really about divorce. It's about singleness. This is just a way to become single. And the Apostle Paul is going to address it in detail. We'll talk about that next week. Now let's skip ahead to verse 25, where Paul's going to address singles who've never been married. He says this, verse 25. Now about virgins... I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I want you to notice the wording here. This happens here and then uh, in other places too. Um, I have no command, but I'm going to give you some really good advice here. Like, I don't have a command. In fact, you read through the passage and you're going to find him say, In my opinion, I think, I wish I say this for your good. I, not the Lord. Like over and over again, he's going to hedge his, this conversation in a way that he doesn't do any other chapter in the entire New Testament, which is to say, this is not law. This is not a command from God. This is pastoral advice. And really good pastoral advice, but it's still just advice. So he's not saying you can't get married or you should get married. He's saying, if you get married, it's going to be like this. If you don't get married, it's going to be like this. And you need to think about it. You need to ingest this wisdom. You need to take some guidance as you go into it. So verse 26, he says, To those who've never been married, 
Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is, not get married. Are you pledged to be a woman, or pledged to a woman? Like, are you engaged? Do you seek, do not seek to be released? Are you free from sexual commitment? Do not look for a wife. He's like, whatever situation you're in, just go with it. You don't want to disrupt it too much. Stay as you are. Now, the real question that this begs is, what's the present crisis he's referring to? For at least 2,000 years, scholars have been speculating on what the present crisis was in Corinth. Some think, if you read chapter 11, we know that some within the church were dying. So they think it's like a plague. And he's saying, in light of the fact that you might not live a few more months, you probably should think about not getting married, you know? You might have a deathly plague or something. So that could be it. The other option, we know from archaeological studies that during the same time period, there were three major famines in southern, in the Peloponnese, southern Greece. And it could be that. He could be saying, in light of the fact that you might not be able to eat, maybe you should think about not getting married. Whatever the case, I want you to hear this question that he's asking because this is going to give us wisdom. So question number one, do you have the gift of celibacy? Question number two, am I in a healthy place? Like, am I not in crisis right now? So in ancient Corinth, the question was, are we in the middle of a plague or a famine? Is there a good chance I'm going to die? But for us in Phoenixville, 2018, the question might be, am I jobless and living in my parents' basement? Like, am I an emotional wreck do I have stage four cancer? Are my credit cards all getting rejected? Like those types of questions. If you are in crisis, I want you to hear this. Marriage is probably not a good idea. It's not sin, but it's probably not a good idea. It's probably unwise. So did this just two weeks ago. Before I start my premarital counseling, before I formally agree to marry, marry off a couple to perform that, I sit them down and I, I do an intake meeting. You know what I do? I ask them every personal question I can think of. I'm like, all right, let's, let's do the list. Let's talk about abuse, molestation, debt, daddy issues, sexual dysfunction, physical ailments, genetic diseases, depression, medication, on and on. Now, I explain clearly, none of these necessarily disqualify you from getting married. You know, if you struggle with depression or sexual addiction or daddy issues, if you have, true story, not from this latest couple, but from one of the couples, we discovered in the process, oh, he's got $50,000 in gambling debt. That'd be good to know, right? If you have medical issues that stop you from having normal sexual relations, these aren't necessarily deal breakers, but you need to go through those before you walk down the aisle. So I've dealt with those before we walked down the aisle, and I've dealt with them 10, 15 years after they walked down the aisle. And can I tell you, it's so much easier over here. The results are so much better. You go 10, 15 years into marriage, and it doesn't go away. It gets worse. The Apostle Paul explains, if you do marry... You have not sinned. It's not sin to get married if your life is a total mess. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you. It's not sin. Like being a complete wreck of a human being does not disqualify you from marriage. But it does mean that marriage is going to be hard. 
So I, I, want you, I guess something that I want to point out here is the Apostle Paul here is over and over through this passage saying, I just wish, I want to spare you. I want your life to be easier, more simple. I want you to have a life like my, mine. I want to spare you hardship. And I just want to remind you that the, this is a man who is blinded, shipwrecked, flogged, starved to death, jailed. And my personal favorite, he was stoned and left for dead once. Like, that's his life. So when he warns you that his lifestyle is going to be easier than yours, you should pay attention. <laughs> like, think about that. He just said marriage is harder than that. He's afraid of it. All right. So the question we have to ask before we dive into this is, am I in a healthy place? Am I in a place where I can be married? Look at verse 29. What I mean, brothers, Paul's going to stop and clarify this. What I mean, brothers, is the time, brothers and sisters, the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they did not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them for the world in this present form is passing away. It's passing away. What I mean, brothers, is the time is short. Like life is short. Eternity is long. Think about it. Think about it. Think about it. And this, of course, when you think about life, many, maybe most of the things that people in our world are most worried about, are devoting most of their time, energy, money, life, are things that are temporary, unimportant, and will pass away. Which, of course, brings me to the topic of football. <laughs> this very passage, and I'm not joking, this very passage is why I no longer follow football. Not saying I don't catch an occasional game, but I no longer follow football. I know um, that many of you couldn't care less about football, but given the historic monument of this day, please indulge me, okay? I did not give up watching football because I don't care. I gave up watching football because I cared too much. I used to watch my team, America's team, <laughs> the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> Oh, that's a good picture. Every week I would watch those games. I would come home from church and I was blasted already like that. And so I just thought, oh, I need like five hours of football. That would be good for my soul. And here's what I learned about myself after doing that week after week, season after season. I learned that when they won, I was happy. Overly happy. Happy as if I had actually done something. Happy as if it actually mattered. And when they lost, I was sad. I mourned. I grieved for days. I didn't like want to get out of bed. Like, oh, life is terrible. And I'm telling you, friends, I've had a lot of sad days. Hmm. And then one day, I thought, how stupid is this? It's a game. It's a game. Men running around with balls jumping. And I'm mourning this. And I'm happy about this. Why am I letting a game affect my soul and my relationships and my reality? This is stupid. So what the Apostle Paul is saying, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short from now on. Those who watch football should live as if they do not. <laughs> not saying you can't watch football, but saying you should live as if you do not. Because this world 
in its present form is passing away. So can I just tell you, life is short, eternity is long, and then 10,000 years. No one's going to be celebrating Nick Foles, not a soul. But in 10,000 years, Nick Foles will still be celebrating Jesus. So, so, maybe we should care a little bit less about who wins the game and about winning souls, especially the Patriots, because they've clearly made a pact with the devil. (laughs) Now, that I've got that out of me, take out the word football and insert the word marriage. That's what the Apostle Paul does. He says, what I mean, brothers and sisters, all of you. So the time is short. Life is short. Eternity is long. And from now on, you who have wives should live as if that you do not. You're, if you're happy, as if you were not, as you mourn, if you were not, as if you own things in the world, as if they were not yours to keep because the world in its present form is passing away. And are you saying, Paul, that marriage isn't important? I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that, but I am saying it's temporary. That right along with possessions and titles and money and Super Bowls, it's part of a system that's ultimately going to be overturned when Jesus Christ comes back and sets up his kingdom in a new heavens and new earth. That the whole point of marriage is to point us to something greater. Jesus is greater than sex and Jesus is greater than marriage. And if my marriage serves Jesus, it's great. And if it doesn't, it's terrible. So, 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 I'm not saying marriage is unimportant. Here's the question. Is the pleasure of marriage one of the best things in life? In this life, yes. It's right up there with winning a Super Bowl. Is the pain of singleness and loneliness terrible? Sure. It's right up there with the Patriots winning the Super Bowl. (laughs) Romans 8, though. I consider that our present sufferings, I consider that our present sufferings, whether it's in marriage or in singleness, whether it's a bad marriage or terrible loneliness, those sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. That Be married, but be married in light of eternity. Be married, but be married in light of what it's going to be like on the day you die. So the next question we should ask, the third question is this. Will this decision make sense on the day that I die? When I stand before Jesus, well, I think I'm so glad I was married because it honored my king And I'm so glad to show him my marriage. That's the question. Will this decision make sense when I stand before Jesus? Will it serve lasting purposes? Will it lead to ultimate joy? Or am I only looking at short-term happiness? That's the question. Verse 32. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affair. How he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife and his interests are divided. So when you're a single guy, there are whole categories of things in life you don't have to think about. It's wonderful. So when I was single, before I was married, my idea of spices were binary, salt and pepper. Right? And then I get married and I find myself like, why am I installing an entire rack for 50 plus things? Like, who knew we need cardamom and gram masala? I'm like, I don't even know what that is. And yet there it goes. Before I got married, I had a piece of furniture. One. A bookshelf. 
<laughs> five years into marriage, I need like a 30-foot moving van and all my friends with pickups to just move five miles down the road. Like, what happened? Like, it, the Apostle Paul is saying that when a man gets married, his life gets a lot more complicated and a lot more expensive. But the same is true for a woman. He says, an unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in body and spirit her whole life. She can, she can drop everything and focus exclusively on the Lord. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world and how she can please her husband. I am not, uh, I'm saying this for your own good. For your own good, not to restrict you but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. The, the Apostle Paul says this. I want you to hear this. Singleness is an opportunity. It's a God-given opportunity. A single person can focus exclusively on the things of God in a way that a married person cannot. Which leads us to the next question. Question number four. Could I better live out God's calling and purpose for my life as a single person? That is the question. Could I better live out God's calling and purpose for my life as a single person? And I want you to think about this and take this question. This is a real question. So just a couple months ago, I get a call from, from George Renner, GVF missionary to Africa. And it's like, Paul, I'm going to be doing this Bible conference. I'd love for you to, to come over. And um, it's in South Sudan. It's like, yeah, I mean, there's a slight chance of death, but probably not. Right? And like a single Paul would have said, yeah! Like, when can we go? I might die too. That's so cool. <laughs> Married Paul said, let me talk to my wife and check my life insurance. Right? Uh, every, every week I get people who want to meet with me to talk about scriptures, about what's going on in their lives, about theological questions. And can I tell you, I love that. Like, I would do that every single night of my life if I could. So single Paul would say, yes, let's book up every single night of my life. In fact, that's what I did when I was single. Every single, every morning, every night, I was booked with people, meeting with people, opening God's word. I loved it, but I'm married. So you know what I say? I pull up my phone and say, ah, I've got a free Tuesday in a month. Is that work for you? Or do you want to go, might have to push it back five, six weeks. You see... I have to be home and fully present for my family at least three nights a week, period. If the whole church collapses and you lose your faith in between time, I'm really sorry about that. I really am. But I will not sacrifice my family for you. I will not. I chose my wife and kids. Now, let me, let me be clear here. I love being married. I absolutely think it was the right decision for me. I am a better human, a better Christian, and a better pastor because of my family. I am, but I do not want to dull the Apostle Paul's point here. Saying yes to marriage is saying no to so many other opportunities. And singles, singles, you need to hear this. Singles, you need to make the most of every opportunity, to quote the Apostle Paul. You need to make the most. You need to go on that mission trip. You need to give everything away. You need to go out to the wilderness and live for 40 days and fast. I don't know. Do something radical. You have a gift from God. That's what he's saying. Do you think the Apostle Paul could do what he did as a married man with kids? No. No, you have an opportunity. Whether it's short-term or long-term, you have an opportunity from God. And so, before you get married, you need to consider, could I live out God's calling and purpose for my life better as a single person? Verse 36, 
if anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin, so he is engaged to. So if he's engaged, a guy's engaged to a girl, and it's like, oh, I don't know if I, we should get married or not. If his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, listen to this. He should do as he wishes. He should do what he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But if the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does the right thing, but he who does not marry her does better. And by better, he doesn't mean morally better. He means pragmatically better, for ministry purposes better. In in the light of the present crisis there in Corinth, it's just better. So... Let's not overcomplicate this. I want you to hear what he said. Here's the question. You ready? Do I really want to get married? (laughs) Like, have you settled the matter in your own mind? Like he's saying, don't just get married because all your friends are doing it. That's a terrible reason to do it. And don't not get married because all the rest of your friends are not married. Like, that's not the reason to do it. Have you settled the matter between you and God and whoever you're in relationship with? Have you settled that matter in your mind? That should be a deciding factor there. Do you want to get married truly? Like, if, if your heart has been forming for years and years, all you thought about is marriage and, and dreaming about having kids, that's probably a sign you should probably get married. There you go. And then next, he says, verse 39. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. So I want you to think about it. So we've gone through all these questions up to verse 5, and then we're going to have a couple in short order here. It says, as long as a woman is bound to her husband, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. And here's the picture I want you to see. Here's the picture that I think Paul wants us to see. When you say yes to marriage, this is what you're saying yes to. This is a couple celebrating their 80th wedding anniversary and she's in a hospital bed. If that's not beautiful to you, then you should not get married. When you say yes to marriage, it's not just that hot young girl, studly guy. You're saying, yes, I want to be beside them when I change their adult diapers. I want to be by them when they can't remember my name anymore. I want to be by them when I die. Marriage is for life. That's the question. Am I willing to commit for life? Last. But if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. And that's the last question in the big like slap in the face. Do they belong to the Lord? Have they surrendered their life to Jesus? Are they a follower of Jesus? And I just want to... Say, I know right now in this room, there are quite a few of you who do not belong to the Lord. Not because he hasn't invited you, but because you've, you've never come to a place where you've um, given your life to him. You've never surrendered your life to him and your spouse has. So I want to first acknowledge how generous it is of you to come and support your spouse and their kids in their decisions. I really do. I, 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 it is very big of you to come and be part of this and come into this clearly. It feels like maybe an outsider's thing and you listen to my sermons that go on and on forever. Um, I am not saying 
that your spouse would be better off without you. I'm not saying that. If you have any questions about that, come back next week and I'll specifically address it. I am not saying that. But I am saying two things. If you do not belong to the Lord, one, your marriage would be better if you surrendered your life to Jesus. It would. Now, I want, you to, I want to be careful here. I'm not saying that you should surrender your life to Jesus to get a better marriage. You should surrender your life to Jesus to get Jesus. A better marriage is just a benefit. Like bring benefit. Oh, it comes along with Jesus. Like seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. So that's number one. Marriage would be better if you surrendered your life to Jesus. But then I have to step back and, and um, define this for you here. Better doesn't necessarily mean easier. Eee! Following Jesus, whether single or married, is hard. It does not mean that your marriage will be like Disney World necessarily. Though it might. It means that your relationship with one another will be more like Jesus. It means that your relationship will mean something in 10,000 years. It means that your marriage will reflect the image of God to a world that desperately needs to see him. That's what I mean by better. It'll be better in the long term. It'll be better when you stand before Jesus. It'll be better for your children. It'll be better for our king, for, for our community. It'll be better for our church. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, what's holding you back? If you haven't figured everything out, can I tell you a secret? None of us have. If you don't know for sure, if you believe or if you trust him, can I tell you another secret? The only way to find assurance, the only way to to really build your faith is by walking in faith. That in surrendering and giving up control, our faith grows and we find assurance. It's not in our ability to know everything and make sense of everything, but our, our faith grows in him as we trust him. It's a relationship. What's holding you back? So the Apostle Paul will finish this passage with giving us his last little two cents. He just wants to get this last little nudge in there. This is how I really feel about singleness before we get off the topic. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. huh? So singleness, the Apostle Paul wants to leave us with this little tidbit, is a great calling, period. It is a great calling. Let's, uh, let's review for all those singles out there who need to take notes. Seven questions asked. Do I have the gift of celibacy? Am I in a healthy place? Like, am I in crisis or am I ready for this? Will this decision make sense on the day that I die? When I stand before Jesus, will I say, yes, I'm so glad I got married? Could I better live out God's calling and purpose for my life as a single person? Do I really want to get married? Number six Am I willing to commit for life? And number seven, do they belong to the Lord? And I want you to notice what's missing. There's something missing from this. This is very un-American. The Apostle Paul does not make a single reference to feelings of love or romance in this. Not one. Nowhere. Nowhere does he say, now if you find someone who feels like they could be your best friend for life then you should run off and get married. He doesn't say that. Paul doesn't seem to think 
that falling in love is a reason for marriage any more than falling out of love is a reason for divorce. It's not that the Apostle Paul doesn't believe in love. He absolutely believes in love. It's that the Apostle Paul believes that Jesus is the measure of love. That Jesus loved you when you were a sinner, when there was absolutely nothing lovely about you. He came after you. That he will never leave you or forsake you, no matter how you might feel, no matter what you've done. Jesus is the measure of love. And whether you're single or married, that makes all the difference. Let's pray. Father, I uh, pray for us as a church that we would be a community that would um, serve you and reflect you and honor you. God, I, I pray that we'd be a place where singleness is affirmed, where singles use the opportunities given to them, Lord, to do great things for your kingdom. God, I pray that we'd be a community where they can be supported in relationships and, and gathered into, that they don't feel lonely, but they're gathered. They are part of the family. They're part of our families. God, we pray that Jesus will be the measure of our love, whether we're single or married. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.